Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. Today with us, we got Justin Dobbs. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing well, thank God. How are you? I'm doing well. Good to see you. And Scott Smelser is with us today. How are you, Scott? Doing well. So today, before we get into kind of the meat of what we want to talk about, I want to just wrap up a couple of loose ends uh, that we had from last week. Last week, we were able to talk about the second coming of Jesus and look at just some different Bible passages, three in particular, uh, that just kind of give the facts of what's going to happen on that final day and Jesus's return. And we noticed some of just like the, the things that we can expect to happen on that day, things that we don't need to expect to happen. Um, and I want to just tie up some reasons like why that's an important discussion to talk about. Um, just studying the second coming and looking at the different Bible verses and passages about that event is not meant to just be like kind of a purely academic exercise of like memorizing the details, memorizing the facts, but it's supposed to affect us and change us and, and lead to some necessary conclusions. Um, and the way that I break it down, and you guys can have different comments um, as well uh, on this subject, the way that I break it down is kind of three big conclusions. Um, the first conclusion is the reason why we're told about the second coming and why we need to learn about it is because it's a warning. Uh, it's a warning that we need to be ready for the coming of Jesus. And the passage that we looked at in Matthew 25, all of the passages leading up to that from 24 on to the end of Matthew 25, Jesus is constantly talking about be ready, be ready, be ready. And he's saying be ready for various different things for the Jews, be ready for the destruction of Jerusalem when Rome comes. And then later on, be ready for the coming of the Lord. Um, and so, you know, Peter also says, knowing that the world will be destroyed in second Peter chapter three, verse 11, what sort of people should you be, um, insinuating you need to be righteous people and be prepared and ready for, um, that, you know, what you're going to be judged in. And thankfully God has given us his word and his scripture to tell us what we're going to be judged in so that we can be ready and prepared and, and make sure that we're kind of storing up treasure for the, those days rather than storing up treasure for, uh, for this life only. Uh, the second thing that I see, so there's one, a warning. The second thing is we need to use it to exhort one another. Um, and that kind of is a little bit different, um, but, you know, more of kind of like our horizontal relationship with each other. Um, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, Paul makes it pretty clear in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11, that after he's talking about the coming of Jesus and all the things that we know about that, use those to encourage and admonish one another and, and help each other grow. Um, and Peter doesn't so much talk about that idea as much, but he does reference in 2 Peter 3 that one of the reasons why God hasn't come back yet is because he's patient and he wants all people to come to repentance. And if that's God's motivation and like one of the things that is part of God's will then what should we be doing for each other? Helping one another come to repentance and kind of directing people towards repentance. And so that's one of the duties of a Christian to shine our lights and, and show people the truth so that they can turn from their evil way and turn to the Lord, um, just like we have. Um, and then the last one, and if you guys have want to add anything on any of those, the last reason why uh, this is important or how it should affect us is coming primarily from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, um, that it's a comfort. Um, it should be a comforting thing to know Jesus is coming. It's not just this uh, kind of stressful thing uh, or this kind of like dark rain cloud that's hovering over us. Um, but it's this, it's this comforting thing that our Lord is coming back. He's going to save us. He's going to take us into paradise. Um, and we can use that to cope with hardships in this life. Like in 1 Thessalonians 4, death is no longer really the worst thing that can happen to you, physical death. Um, you know, it's just like sleep in First Thessalonians 4. And so knowing that our Lord will return helps us to persevere and to, you know, endure through hardship, um, looking forward for something so much better that will be revealed to us. Um, so that's just kind of a quick cliff notes about that. Do you guys have anything you want to add about that? Good summation. All right, cool. So, uh, Scott, where are we going to go today? Well, we got some questions. Justin's going to read uh, for us that came in. And as he reads these questions, uh, that's what we'll be ad addressing in the next few minutes. But we've got time today for more questions. So as you're listening, if you've got a question about what's just said, what's about to be said, or something that you're studying or have run into, um, please uh, uh, send a question in. And Jonathan, one more time, remind them how they can get those questions in. 
yeah, on Zoom, either the Q&A window or the chat box or on the Facebook page, uh, you can do that on the comment window. And if you're listening to this after the show on the podcast, go to our website, bobaquest.tv, and you can submit your questions there. Very good. Okay, Justin? Yeah, so we had two questions come in over the last week. Uh, one directly relates, I think, to what we've been talking about with the return of Jesus. And one uh, relates kind of tangentially, but it's an important question for us to consider. So I'll go ahead and read both of those. Uh, the first is, when we get to heaven, what will we be doing? Uh, which is a really uh, thought-provoking question. I'm looking forward to discussing that. And the second question is a little bit longer. Uh, you can tell someone's been thinking a lot about this. And I really appreciate the thoughtfulness here. But uh, it says, where do Christians today find biblical authority for using money collected on the Lord's day to own or rent and pay utilities for a building for the purposes of assembly. Also, some churches assembled within private homes in the first century as seen in scripture. And we understand that those homes were primarily used as a residence and secondarily used as a place of assembly. Then outside of the times when the church is purposefully assembled for worship or study, could a church building rightly be used for other purposes like sharing a meal, holding a wedding ceremony, holding a funeral, or feeding the poor? Why or why not? I appreciate your time and dedication to the word. Um, I'll just say I really appreciate the question about biblical authority. That's something we want to make sure that we have everything we're doing. But I guess we can talk about this first question um, for the next little while. When we get to heaven, what will we be doing? So uh, where would you go in scripture to answer that one? Let's start with what we won't be doing, okay? Because there's a few famous verses that tell us what we won't be doing. What are some things we won't be doing? Uh, I immediately go to Matthew 19, thinking about uh, being given and giving in marriage. So we won't be getting married. We won't be marrying and giving in marriage. That's one thing we won't be doing. Uh, talks about... God will wipe away every tear, uh, won't be dying, etc. Right now, what does Scripture say we will be doing? One, one of the interesting things, and and we can maybe get try to find some more specific things to talk about. But in kind of thinking about this myself and going through different passages, one of the things that I've noticed is the the answer that Scripture often gives is not so much of like what activities we'll be engaging in and there is a little bit about that or like what the the surroundings will be like it's not so much of like what is heaven like as much as it is who is in heaven um that seems to be more of kind of the focal point um and you know like we read in second peter chapter three uh we the heavens and earth will be burned up and we'll have a new heavens and a new earth so there will be kind of a new habitat um, that's made and you know what that is we talked about last week we're not 100 sure but it's this new dwelling place given for god's people but the focus that i often see back to is like the the people that will be there or the beings that will be there god the father will be there uh, jesus will be there and the saints will be there and the things that god will offer to his saints are you know peace um light uh goodness uh, he'll be a, a dwelling place for them uh revelation talks about him being like the temple um and so uh, yeah i i think that that's a helpful way of kind of thinking about heaven is is more of like a a communion with god rather than that's the destination that we're going to be at i don't know if you guys want to add anything to that but that's i think an interesting thing to just throw in as well very good justin uh, well, I'll have to say when we first got this question, um, I thought there's a lot to consider. At, at first, I thought, well, we don't know a lot. Um, but the Bible does does talk to uh, the kind of dwelling. And I think um, in a conversation we'd had earlier, we talked about streets of gold um, and you know the, the songs that we sing about, I've got a mansion, uh, things like that. But it, it's not, it doesn't seem so much focused on the um uh, interior design quality of heaven so much as just just trying to communicate to us in an earthly way something of the eternal value uh, it's not made of sticks and straw uh it, it's a dwelling place that is made to last and to be enjoyable 
and and the the luxury, uh, uh, the comfort of heaven is, I think, because what Jonathan said is, is it's because of who's there. Uh, every picture we get of heaven seems to center around the person of God. Um, maybe we go to Revelation chapter four and five, and God is centerpiece in this vision. Everyone's around God. Everyone's crying out, holy, 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 nonstop. And so everything's about the Lord. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if, if you're thinking, okay, so heaven's going to be this eternal assembly of worship. So it sounds a lot like I'm going to be in church forever. Um, maybe some of us are like, uh, that's not my favorite. Um, and so maybe maybe a different kind of conversation we could have is why worship's important, uh, what it does for us, um, and and why that's such a big deal for us now. Uh, so there's lots of my mind started going in lots of different places about okay, wow, worship is really important, it's really valuable. Um, so we don't pause there. But Scott, did you have some other things you want to talk there? Two or three thoughts. One on the idea of worship, for instance, in Acts, I mean, Revelation 4 and 5, you know, there's a continual worship and, and, and bowing down and adoration uh, of, of God on the throne and of the Lamb. And they worship him, you know, uh, there's continual worship like that. So one thing we might observe from that is that if you're not interested in God and honoring God, you, you might not like heaven very much. Um doesn't mean you're going to enjoy heaven, but you, you, if you don't want to be around God now, why would you expect to want to be around God then? Secondly, uh, before we just assume that it's nothing but, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, you know, church that never gets to the amen, um, it, it might be interesting to think back what were the prophecies in the Old Testament about what the Messianic age would be like? And yes. What were some of those prophecies? Yeah. A lot of them focused on the idea of, of rest. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the common phrases, I think you brought this up at the beginning, Scott, when we were discussing this, the, the idea of like being able to be under your, your palm tree and your fig, uh, you have your fig plant there with you. It's this idea of like, uh, you know, getting to rest from everything, having just kind of, you know, uh, you know peace uh, and contentment. Yeah. And uh, beating uh, spears into plowshares and climbing up the ascent on the way up to Mount Zion uh, with the other nations as we go to worship God. Just there's a passage I'd like to read um, from Isaiah. I think it's it's messianic uh, in the sense that it's looking forward to a comfort that God's going to bring to Jerusalem. And when you see historically, it it just didn't happen this way uh, physically. There's there's a spiritual uh, manifestation of this idea. But in Isaiah 51, um, verse one: Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song, uh, and so kind of like what you said, Scott, earlier. If if you're not if you're not really interested in being near God and worshiping God, if you're not interested in righteousness, well, then verse one is not going to appeal to you. You know, if you're not pursuing righteousness, then this call to Zion. Uh, if you're not interested in seeking the Lord, um, you know, Jesus says that the blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yeah. Well, if I'm not interested in seeing God. If I'm not really hoping that Jesus will return one day, then this is not going to appeal to me very much. So heaven, heaven really holds all. When we sing heaven holds all to me, it's not going to hold anything for anybody who doesn't want to see God, who's not interested in righteousness. Uh, but this picture of paradise and rest and comfort is, a, I think, a beautiful 
kind of throwback to the Garden of Eden. Not that the new heavens and new earth are going to be like, you know, Eden, I'm not sure, any more than, say, the Messianic kingdom today is like the Garden of Eden. But that's, that's the feel of it. That's the picture of it. And in Revelation 22, we're brought back to the tree of life and stuff. And a lot mm -hmm. of imagery from Ezekiel. Uh, but again, uh, how much of these descriptions to take literally and how much to get the idea? And I want to share something. You guys may have heard me say this before, but I, I think it illustrates the point fairly well. I want you to imagine for a moment that I am blind. That I, I didn't lose my sight. I was born blind. I'm not legally blind, but I can see some. I'm just blind. There's, I have no vision at all. And I'm talking with you guys, and I say, what is blue? What is yellow? Difficult. I don't even know. Uh... I wouldn't even really know where to begin describing it with someone who could see. Um, but to, to describe it, you might use some things of like what it what it feels like. Yeah. Um, so talking about yellow, it's 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 you know being in the sunshine and feeling the warmth um, is you know what the yellow is. Butter melting on a waffle, you know, you're you're and what's blue? Kids splashing in the water, in the waterfall. What's gray? A rainy day. Yeah, yeah. And none of these, none of these is going to help me see the color yellow or the color blue or the color gray. But you're going to use things that I can tell with my other four senses. Now, if you tried to describe yellow or blue scientifically, and you start to talk about light waves and light particles and pixel fraction. And right. if you got a mathematical description of the frequency of a light wave that will reflect yellow as opposed to blue, and you give the me the blind guy's gonna say, Oh, now I understand. <laughs> it's like, man, I, I thought these were nice things, and it sounds like algebra. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so if God described, so we're talking about a time when we won't have flesh and blood. We will, though, have a body, a spiritual will. What will that be like? Let me see. But spiritual body, but not flesh and blood. If it was described to us in purely scientific terms, it might, it might sound really, <laughs> you know, uh, but it, it, it's given it to us in images that we can grasp. All right. Anything else? So, go ahead, Justin. Well, uh, you know, what will we be doing? Um, you know, it sounds like the question has behind it, and uh, you have to be careful about trying to guess at the motivation behind the question. Um, but it sounds like maybe the person asking it said, uh, "There's got to be a worthy work that we're going to be equipped for. That we're going to be busy doing." If there's no more sin, um, then and there's no more, you know, fall. You know, we're not living in this corrupt world. Then won't life be without work? Or you know, what purpose will we have? And those are, I think, interesting and important questions. Um, and it reminds me of a conversation I actually had with one of my children here recently, and they were talking about how hard a particular job was that they had. It was they were doing something in, in school, and it's just it's just difficult. And uh, this particular child is um, fairly bright. Things come pretty easily. And all of a sudden they hit this challenge and it's tough. Um, and so if it's hard, then it can't be good. Well, we, we went back to Genesis chapter two. And actually, I think it's end of Genesis one. Uh, you know, it's interesting, the word paradise, uh, at least in the ESV, it doesn't show up. But I think in, the, in some translations, it's the word garden. It's just the word garden. When Jesus talks to the uh, thief on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's saying, today you'll be with me in garden. It's the same word. Uh, and when you think garden, if you go to the garden to enjoy it, like some of these palace gardens, you just sit on the, the bench or in the hammock, but it took work to get it there, you know, to make it that way. 
And so when God in Genesis 1:28 tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, that, that sounds like work to me. So I don't, again, I don't know what heaven work will be like, but imagine a work that is fruitful, that is abundant, that is God blessed, that is God partnered, uh, that doesn't meet with sin or frustration or rivalry, you know, that kind of fulfilling work. Um, there's a song that we sing, uh, peace, perfect peace. Uh, do the will of Jesus, this is rest. Um, imagine a scenario in which you're perfectly doing God's work uh, with all the skill sets and all the abilities and all the abundance he provides. And that work is ultimately fulfilling. It's perfectly satisfying. It's restful. Um, that, that sounds like a good thing to me. And there are so many Bible passages that weave into that. The, the garden paradise imagery is used in the temple, in the tabernacle. Uh, a lot of those pictures of worship seem to throw back to the garden. So uh, we, we need to have a good idea of what working with God looks like. It is a joy uh, just to be with him and to serve alongside him. And also, let's just mention there are more than one passage that describe heaven as a rest. So Hebrews 4, let us strive to enter into that rest. Revelation chapter 14, those who have been worshiping the beast and not serving God, they have no rest day and night. That's in verse 11. But then for the faithful, in verse 13, uh, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And it says that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. So it's a rest from the deeds that we've done here, but it's also eternal. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, uh, I, I, I like a night's rest after I've been working, but then at a certain point, it's nice to get up and do something. So we'll we'll see what all it will be like, uh, and and kind of like the resurrected body. We don't know exactly what it will be like, but it'll be better than this. And, and one of the things, you know, when uh, when my family is getting ready to go and, and be with our extended family for like a holiday or something, um, you know the the younger kids are asking, what are we going to do when we get there? And us older, you know, the adults are like, we don't really care. We just get to be together and we'll do something and it'll be good. It'll be fun. And I, I wonder if the closer we get to heaven and maybe the more spiritually minded we are, uh, it's, it's going to be less about what are we going to do as so much as who are we with and we'll do stuff and it'll be great. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but we'll be together with the father and it'll be comforting and the light of his face will be shining on us. And I don't think it's just going to be this one long, slow um, looking into one another's eyes, longingly kind of romantic scene, but it, it's, it's going to be beautiful. Uh, and it's, it's something to work for now so that, that it will be, I, someone said, I want to, I want to come into heaven exhausted. Um, I, I want, I want to be ready for rest when I get there. Uh, so, so work for it now so that when it comes it will feel like a rest there you go all right let's move on to question number two read that one for us again please now where do christians today find biblical authority for using money collected the lord's day to own or rent and pay utilities for a building for the purposes of assembly also some churches assembled within private homes in the first century as seen in scripture and we understand that those homes are primarily used as a residence and secondarily used as a place of assembly. Then outside of the times when the church is purposefully assembled for worship or study, could a church building, as in quotations, rightly be used for other purposes like sharing a meal, holding a wedding ceremony, holding a funeral, or feeding the poor? Why or why not? Appreciate your time and dedication to the word. So let's break this down. Let's talk about the contribution on the first dead week. Let's talk about where Christians met uh, in the first century. Let's talk about the concept of authority for spending money to have a place to worship. And then let's talk about um, this question of 
using a facility for things other than work and serve. So on the first one, the contribution made on the Lord's Day, how many passages in the New Testament specifically refer to a contribution being on the Lord's Day? I'm going to say just one, but there might be two. Just one. So there are other references to that contribution, like in 2 Corinthians, he says, you know, that they've given, but he doesn't mention what day they gave. But where it discusses the contribution on the Lord, it's just one. And where is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. Yeah, so, so I, can, I can read that really quick. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed you, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each one is to put up something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. Read verse 2 also, please. Yeah, um, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to lay up something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be My no bad. collecting when I come. My bad, verse okay. 3. Verse 3, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Okay, so this collection was from the Corinthians. Now we know from Romans 15 that he also got a collection from the Macedonians. Right. And we know from verse 1 that he's also uh, instructed the churches of Galatia to do the same. But what is this collection for specifically? There are needy saints uh, back in Jerusalem. Yeah. And it uh, seems to be similar to what they had encountered when they were in Antioch in Acts 11, yeah. Uh, where, yeah. Yeah, so this is for needy saints at Jerusalem. So I might ask this question. Where do we have authority to take money contributed on the first day of the week and support evangelists? I don't know if there's specifically... Uh from the money from the first day of the week, if that's all in one place. But in first Corinthians chapter nine, Paul makes it very clear that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so an evangelist is worthy of support. And we know from Philippians that uh, he said, when I went into Thessalonica, you know, you sent money for me again and again. And now in Rome, they've sent for him again. And so we've got various passages showing that evangelists could be supported by a church but not a single one of them mentions that it's collected on the first day of the week. Um, what I would suggest is this passage shows us when money was to be collected and how it was to be collected for a work of the church. And when we see other things that are a work of the church, we can use the biblical principles that we have here. And if we don't do that, we get into trouble. For example, um, Jonathan, you're an evangelist. Justin, you're an evangelist. I'm an evangelist. Suppose we all tell our brethren that support us. The three of us were talking the other day, and we noticed that 1 Corinthians 16 about the Sunday collection is only talking about benevolence for needy Christians, needy Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. We don't happen to be needy Jewish uh, Christians in Jerusalem, so these principles don't apply. So, for instance, Wednesday night, we'll be taking up a collection for us. And if during a meeting, we'll be taking up a collection for us each time. And by the way, uh, we're not really interested in whether you give it grudgingly or not. Uh, and we're not really interested if you haven't made any money or not. We just want kind of a head tax and just cough it up. We'll tell you how much to give. And regardless of whether or not any made money, we'll determine in our hearts what you're going to give and we'll take it whenever we want. Now, rightly so, what would all the brethren that support us say? Nope. And by the way, <laughs> you know, we're going to stop supporting you. Um, so it'd be pretty counterproductive, but they would point out why that flies and in we're the going face. beyond authority. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If 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 when we see instructions to a church 
on how to collect the money for needy Jewish believers in Jerusalem if the principles are be a cheerful giver. Give as you prosper. And, and these instructions are all in 2 Corinthians uh, 9 about that same collection. Uh, give as you prosper, 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, be a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9. Give as you've determined in your own heart, not grudgingly, 2 Corinthians 9. Do it each first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16. By what right should we assume authority to ignore those biblical principles just because we're not Jewish brethren in Jerusalem that are poor? So the principle would apply to other things that are a work of the church. Does that make sense so far? Yep. All right. So if we know that there's evangelists supported by a church and we want to support evangelists by a church, we've got a precedent in the Bible for how to take up money when there's a work of the church to be done. First day of the week, as people prosper, they determine it in their own heart and they're doing it cheerfully, not grudgingly. Use those same biblical principles. Uh, and if we've got, say, some needy widows, you know, use those principles, whatever might be a work of the church. Now, uh, what about where Christians assembled. Let's take a look. Where did Christians assemble in the first century? Various different places. Start showing some of us to us. Uh, in the early few chapters of Acts, it seems like they're meeting at the temple. Uh, yeah. Later, it seems like they moved to uh, synagogues. Uh, we see Paul, he's traveling around. They're, they're uh, meeting in a synagogue. Later, they get pushed out of there. They're meeting in a school nearby. Um, and then in Romans 16, I think it is, talks about uh, the church in their house. Uh, seems like churches were, were assembling in people's homes. Yeah. Acts chapter 19. Go ahead, John. In Acts chapter 19, the Christians in Ephesus looks like they were assembling at the school of Tyrannus. Yeah, the school of Tyrannus. Um, Codex Beza uh, has an interesting reading there. It tells they met there in the afternoons between, was it three and five or four and six or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure that's an original reading, but uh, if I understand correctly, culture in Ephesus, that was a time when businesses shut down. They did business in the morning and in the evening, but in the afternoon, it was kind of a siesta time. And uh, if there's some ancient history lineage to that reading, it may be that that was then when the school of Tyrannus was available for Paul to use for this. So oftentimes they met in people's homes. We've already mentioned Aquila and Priscilla in Rome, the church met in their house. Also in the Corinthian correspondence, we see that a church in Asia met in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. So when they were at Ephesus, they let brethren meet in their home. And when they go back to Rome, they let brethren meet in their home. Uh, Romans chapter 16, um, you've got uh, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church. So the church was meeting in Gaius's home. Also earlier, Paul had been teaching there in the home of Titus Justice early in the church there. So often we see them meeting in a home. Sometimes in the temple, they were under Solomon's portico. John. Yeah, also just backtracking a little bit, Patrick had a good comment. Um, besides 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, there's another biblical way money went into a congregation's treasury found in Acts 11, 27 through 30. And so that's referencing, I think Justin referenced the famine during the days of Agabus. Um, and it looks like that they kind of, there's this great need that comes up and an immediate kind of response. And then they send the money to the elders. Um, so that's El yeah. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 to 30. And in both cases, that's churches elsewhere sending for needy, needy saints in, the, or in and around Jerusalem. All right. Um, now, let's notice some, and by the way, I think we make a mistake when we make a church building the priority in the center of everything. Um, there is probably sometimes where people could have and should have maybe met in their home, 
and jumped into a building too early, ended up with too much expense and with without too much benefit. But just geographically, let's stop and think about it for a minute. So the early church, they're meeting in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch ran along the whole length of the eastern side of the temple compound, not the actual holy of holies and holy place. It's out here. Uh, and in, in fact, Gentiles even could be in that area. Uh, but it was huge. And what would the weather be like? Uh, if you draw a line from Jerusalem straight across, stay on the same latitude, where would you get to in the new world? Tijuana, Mexico and Savannah, Georgia. My point is right now I'm in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That's a little bit far north from Jerusalem. In a place like Jerusalem, it would be easier to meet in an outside porch than it would be in Minnesota or Alaska or somewhere. Uh, and so uh, I mean, we planted work up here and now we're about 50 people and I'm not sure how many cars there might be 15 to 20 cars. It would be a challenge to try to get 50 people in 15 or 20 cars in somebody's home. And it's suiting us to rent a facility. Do we see an example of uh, brethren in the New Testament renting a facility? Maybe, maybe not. There's a school of Tyrannus. Paul is using Tyrannus's school, obviously with permission. And I suppose there's one or two possibilities. Tyrannus felt favorable to Paul, maybe he was a believer, and he just said, hey, you can use my school. What would the other possibility be? Hey, you can use my school uh, between these hours for this cost. Yeah, yeah. And I think either would have been legitimate because what did the saints need? They needed, yeah, they needed a location. And so I think it boils down to, is something a work of the church? And assembling together is part of what a church does. Uh, let, let's do this. Go to Acts chapter 6. And, and Scott, while we're, while we're going there, if you don't mind, I'll, just, I'll say this too. Um, in Jerusalem, um, I'm not had the benefit of going myself, but I understand in the winter they have the rainy season. And so during the spring, summer, fall months, you know, it might be pretty convenient to be together in Solomon's portico. But even during the winter, it's going to be wet and cold, even down to freezing temperatures in Jerusalem. Uh, and so even the church is going to figure out something. Uh, and then when persecution arises, even more so, they're going to, <laughs> it's not going to be snow that's going to be driving them out. It's going to be uh, threatening. That's going to drive them to finding some kind of place to meet. All right, so we're going to do an exercise here in Acts 6. Uh, in these days, the disciples were increasing. Were a complaint of the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. The 12 summoned full number of disciples said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good report of the spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint them. You pick them out, we will appoint them. We'll devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry deaconing of the word while they do the deaconing of the tables. The Greek word is the same basic word here, distribution, serve, etc. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procris, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they laid their hands on them. So let's imagine that Jonathan and Justin are two of the seven. And let's say it's a smaller church. And so instead of seven, two is going to do. But you've got, say, several dozen widows uh, that are qualified to be helped by the church. Um, and some of them have been getting what they need and some haven't. You guys, you're not over the church but you're over this business. The American standard says, we will point them over this business. So you're gonna serve the church and the widows by taking care of this. 
how are you guys going to feed these 32 litters? Jonathan does the peanut butter, I do the jelly. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> are you going to have all the widows come to one location or are you going to take the food to the widows? Probably depends on the situation, but I would imagine probably taking it to them would be more beneficial, especially okay. in our situation. Uh, now, a little bit larger group, you got 64 widows. Okay. Um, and by the way, how, how many times, how many days does a widow need fed? Everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to be daily feeding these 64 widows. And so you're going to take it to them. How are you going to get it there? Might have to buy a wagon. Might have to buy a wagon. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to take the food in disposable containers or um, China, you know, dish, dishware that you're going to have them wash and give back to you? What do you think? I don't know if Ziploc had been invented in the first century, so probably uh, terracotta or something like that. Okay, all right. So we'll, need to, we'll need to watch it afterwards, so let's yeah, uh, yeah. figure so out how to do that. Take it, then collect it, come back and wash it. So is that what y'all want to opt for instead of paper plates? It's your choice here. You guys are in charge. <laughs> yeah, that works. That works. Let's do that. Okay, so terracotta. So you're going to you put the food on the wagon. You're going to take the wagon around to the 64 homes. You're going to hand them their terracotta. This is then you're gonna come back and collect all the terracotta dishes, bring it back here to wash it and et cetera. Um, where's the food gonna be prepared? Uh, might need to start enlisting some people because I'm not that good of a food preparer. Yep. So yep. we'll yep. delegate it out, let yep. maybe yep. other members of the church that are able to uh, make the food. What kind of meats and vegetables are you gonna serve the witness? So I think what we're going to need here is a a plan, a team, a budget. Yes. Uh, are and you, there's a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to have to spend some money? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not going to buy any bacon, but you're going to be buying some lamb, and that's going to take money. You're going to be buying some vegetables. That's going to take money. If you cook it in a central location, that's going to require some wood or charcoal. That's going to take a little bit of money. If you buy a wagon and distribute it, that's going to take some money. Uh, but you could have gone a different way. You could have had all the widows come to you and you could have done paper plates, right? It's not that one's right or one's wrong. You guys have got to figure out what's going to be the best solution in your area with your number of widows, right? If you have all the widows come to one place, might you need a table? Might need a kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you might need a kitchen. You might need a table. You might need some chairs. You might need some napkins. Whatever you spend on this work of the church, where's your authority to do it? They were looking at First Corinthians sixteen. Um, the idea that the church is is providing money for the work that the church is doing. Well, in First Corinthians sixteen shows when to collect funds for a work of the church. But if this is a work of the church, if it involves expense, the expense is authorized within the fact that it is a work of the church. Mm -hmm. So you two or you seven. Stephen and these other guys as they're doing this, they, they're going to make some decisions that maybe don't cost money, but a lot of the questions they're going to decide are going to involve money. You know, the distribution of it, the preparation of it, et cetera, or the bringing them together of it. There's going to be some expenses. Those expenses are legitimate expenses when it's for doing what they were commanded to do, correct? And if church A decides to buy a couple of Meals on Wheels vans because they got 120 widows and they're distributing it all, and church B decides to build a kitchen and have them come there, either of those is the work of the church. Yeah, as they're providing for needy Christians, then yeah, absolutely. The work of the church. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, side point. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, so you're talking about a fellowship hall. 
uh, we are already going to have a fellowship hall. If you understand what the word fellowship is used for in the New Testament. Fellowship mm -hmm. in the New Testament is not about good times and parties and potlucks. Fellowship in the New Testament is like koinonia, sharing, communion. It's sharing in suffering, sharing in the Holy Spirit, sharing in the blood of Christ. And the word communion, that's the word koinonia, fellowship. So if you've got a place where you get together and have communion, that's a fellowship hall. It's not a place for pizza for the teenagers. It's a place where you come together in community. Justin. So, so I think I'm, I'm connecting some dots here then. If, if, uh, if a work is something that the Bible describes as being, that's the work the church should be about, you know, whether it's taking care of needy Christians, uh, whether it's evangelism, whether it's just the church assembling to be together, uh, to worship together, to, um, to read God's word together, to encourage each other, uh, spiritually encourage one another. Sometimes we say, you know, encourage each other. We mean like go putt putt golf. And that's not, that's not quite the same thing. Um, if it's the work of the church that the Bible has prescribed, then our efforts go toward that, including our, our financial backing. If then, because uh, part of the question here is about funerals, weddings, if then there's something that's not the work of the church, it sounds like that would be excluded from what we might do with the, the collection of the church. I, let's, let's do it this way. Suppose the church buys a copier to print out Bible lessons, bulletins, invitations, different things. I think the church, if it's doing the work of the church, could buy a copier and use it for things that are worth the church. That might be good stewardship. We homeschool. Suppose there's several of homeschool and say, hey, let's go use the church copier for all our homeschooling. That's going to save us a lot of money. But it's not mine. It's not my copier that I paid for with my money. If we use the Lord's money given for his work for that copier, let's let that copier be used for the work of the church. Yeah, if we needed a van to distribute the, the food to all these widows, then let's let it be used for the work of the church. And I say, hey, I want to take a trip to the Poconos. Let's just grab the church van. That's not the work of the church. In other words, if you buy something for the work of the church, and we understand this in business as well. If you buy something for the work of the church, let it be used for the work of the church. By the way, Pat, Patrick here has a good comment. He says, obviously, if feeding widows is a work of the church, then you could use the church building to feed them, 1 Timothy 5.16. And you might, if you had enough widows that it was actually a practice. If you got a few widows, you know what might work better? having a sign-up list and, you know, the different people in the congregation prepare food uh, on, you, you guys take care of this day, you guys take care of this day. But if you got hundreds of them, you might need to build a kitchen in the church building. But that's not a social thing. That's for a work of the church, Justin. So uh, it sounds like sometimes we, conversations that I've had about these sorts of things, we say, okay, this is an issue about how we spend our money, or this is an issue about whether the church has a kitchen or not. And it's really not about those things. Those things are kind of uh, superficial. There are things, those are questions we have to answer, uh, but it's really about what is, what is the work that we're doing? And if this is a biblically authorized, you know, God prescribed work of the church, then our efforts go to that. Uh, and then the question becomes, what's the best way to do it? How, how does stewardship, impact the way that we do this work yeah like coming back to when you guys were deacons and and figuring out how to feed those widows you know you could have just bought expensive china and took it to the widows and said just throw it away afterwards that wouldn't be very practical or wise you look at it you look at the number of widows you got you look at where they're at their health expenses and think what's going to work here um so now let's look at first Corinthians 11 because when people think about when this subject comes up, a lot of people think about 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and there's an important principle here, but sometimes the point gets stretched. 
So let's take a look at it. The Corinthians are abusing the Lord's Supper, right? Oh, wow. We are out of time. It is too you can, big. You can, you can make this point really quickly, and then if we want to keep going. I'll make this point really quickly. They're turning the Lord's Supper into a meal to fill their belly. Paul says what? You've got houses to eat in. Eat at home. Okay, so there's an important distinction there. On the one side, I think this indicates Paul wasn't saying that there should be a church potluck at the meeting place every Sunday. Because if that's what he meant, he would have said what? We have the church fellowship potluck coming up right after this. <laughs> Wait a few minutes. That's not what he said. When they came together, it wasn't to fill their bellies. He said, you've got houses to eat in. You know, uh, this is for a memorial before the Lord. This is not the time and place. But this is not an issue of what they were doing in the church building because they didn't have a church building at the time. Uh, in this is 1 Corinthians written right around, say, 55. By 57, he mentions that the church is meeting in Gaius's house. Uh, earlier, met at Titus Justice's house. So it may be in, in doing various church plannings, various times we've met in our house. Um, and during the worship service, that's not time for people to fill their belly. But if in my house that I'm paying for, I want to invite Justin and Lindsay or Jonathan and TJ or both of them to stay after and we'll have a meal, I've got a right to. That's my house. Uh, but if we use the money, just like if I've got a van and I want to drive some food over to a widow, that's fine. And if I want to take us to the Poconos, that's fine. But if we're going to take money given for the Lord's work, let's use that for the Lord's work. But we are out of time. And if you guys want to talk some more about this next time, we can. But I got to talking and ran us out of time. Pardon me. No, that's good. Yeah. And obviously, it looks like, I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about concerning authority. It's certainly a really important topic for us to think about. And so maybe uh, next week or, or in following weeks, when you discuss just kind of different aspects of biblical authority, how to establish it, how to, how to feel about it, what we have authority to do, not to do, things like that. Um, and so for our audience, if you have any further questions about that specific topic or any other authority type things or, or any other Bible questions you want to ask us, uh, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv and we can get to those in our future shows. Um, Scott? And a good principle is not to begin with what do we want to do or what are we used to doing, but what do we see in the Word? Yep. Thank you, guys. Great. All right. Thank you all. That's all that we have for this week. And so we will plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.